1: It's good to see you all here today. My name is Tom, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, and it's my privilege to bring the teaching today and, well, frankly, most Sundays that you'll be showing up here. So, hey, I'm excited. In the month of August, we're going through a massive series on healing, and we're looking at four stories in particular from the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the eyewitness accounts, or based on eyewitness accounts that was written in the Bible about the life of Jesus. We're looking at four stories in Luke of healing, of how Jesus entered someone's life and their life was changed as a result. And we're trying to glean from it and a, a greater understanding for ourselves of what does it mean for us to, uh, to actually ask for healing? What does it mean for us to come to Jesus and ask for healing, maybe for ourselves or maybe for someone that we love? And then in particular, a question that I'm, I'm the thing we've been praying for doesn't happen the way we had hoped it would happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are we supposed to think about the fact that there are people we pray for who are not healed? As well as people we pray for who are. How is just to process that? How is just to fit that in? And my hope is that through this series, we will two things. Really based on those two questions. We will be more trusting, more faithful, more excited even to bring our requests to Jesus to come and ask for healing and to do that fully trusting Jesus' good intention for us, but also that we'll be able to place that within the larger story of what God is doing, of where we live or where we are in this story, so that we can understand the truth and continue to proclaim the good news that Jesus is present even in those times when we continue to suffer. And that's my hope. Can I say a quick prayer as we dive into this week's story? Jesus, I just ask that you would reveal yourself to us, even now, as we look at this powerful story of how you changed this paralyzed man's life. I'm mindful, Lord, that there are many among us who are carrying in themselves struggles that they're asking for healing for, as well as we are mindful of the many among us who are carrying uh, the burden of others. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us and your good intention to us would we more fully trust you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the story we're looking at today in Luke chapter 5 follows directly on last week's story where Jesus fully cleansed and restored a man who was covered in an infectious skin disease and leprosy. It's an amazing story. And if you missed it, I do encourage you to go back and listen on ericksoncovenant.ca or through iTunes. Catch up. There's some stuff I said there that does Uh, lay a bit of a groundwork for some of the things I'll be saying uh, today. Well, this is the following story. It starts in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. This is how it goes. One day, Jesus was teaching. Remember how Jesus prioritized teaching? He wanted people to understand even how his healings fit in to this announcement that the kingdom of God was here, and he was eager to teach people about what was going on. So Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Okay, so the setting is that Jesus there teaching. He's also healing. And there's people there who are both with needs as well as people there whose arms are a bit crossed. And they're watching Jesus, right? Their antenna is up. They're watching. They don't know if this guy's legit. And actually, in the context of Luke, what follows this story in the next, like, four or five stories are, are actual conflict stories, that these characters, who are pretty critical of Jesus, are they show up again and again in the next series of stories, because whatever Jesus seems to say and do troubles them. And they've got questions, and they push back. This is the first of a series of stories like that. I wanted you to know that. And so there's people there who are watching Jesus, listening to Jesus on their guard, but also desiring Jesus to do something for them. And the house is packed, as we'll soon discover. Packed with people, so packed, in fact, that people can't get in. It's like the party you hope never happens when you're gone on holidays. Right? (laughs) Wall to wall, spilling into the outside, neighbors can hear it, what's going on. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man, his name's Mike now, we know, on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, I love this story just right here. Isn't this amazing? I want to know which friend it was who first said, guys, let's go up in the roof and rip it up. Who is that guy? Now, those of you who own businesses who are always looking for a good employee. Don't you want to hire that guy? He's an innovative problem solver. You know? you know, the old cliche about when their door doesn't open, there'll be a window. Well, this guy couldn't even find a window. So he just decides, let's go rip up the roof. Let's go vandalize this man's property. When Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now before we we get to what Jesus said, let's first talk about what Jesus saw. Let's talk about faith. Because faith is a big word. Faith is a word that we give a lot of definition to. We maybe carry different ideas in our minds about what faith is. Jesus saw the faith of this man's friends, which is interesting. It doesn't actually say anything about him seeing the faith of the man on the mat. It says that he saw the faith of the friends of the man on the mat. But when Jesus saw their faith, what did he actually see? Like, what was meeting his eyes when he saw their faith? Or maybe another way of putting this, what his faith looked like? Now, I want you to imagine yourself in that room. You are packed in tight like sardines. You are shoulder to shoulder with people you don't want to be shoulder to shoulder with, but you're there and you're with Jesus and and there's people right in front of you and there's people behind you and it's hot. But you don't care because Jesus is in the room and he's teaching and he is bringing this A game, which Jesus always does. He's a great teacher. And he's teaching and he's sharing people about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God looks like and what Yahweh is doing as he always promised he would do. And he's doing this now among them. And they're mesmerized until all of a sudden dust starts to fall from the roof. There's some thumping going on up there. And you're wondering what is, it's... But, but Jesus doesn't notice because he's like every good teacher. A lot can be going on. He's in the zone. He didn't notice. Sometimes you guys ask me, did you notice the screaming child? No, I didn't notice the screaming child. I didn't know the person, I didn't notice the person who fainted in the back, frankly. Because when you're in the zone, you're in the zone. So Jesus is in the zone, he doesn't notice, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and people are mesmerized, and they're excited, but then all of a sudden there's thumping, and there's dust, and, oh, but he keeps going, until he can't go any longer, because you know what it's like to be in a place where suddenly things are falling down the back of your collar? Snow, hay, dust, dirt. Suddenly, it's just, you can't go on any further, right? And then, so things are starting to fall, and then a light appears, and they're pulling stuff back, and people are looking up, and they're wondering, what is going on? And, and here's, you know, this is the miracle that never gets noted in this story. A room that was so packed you couldn't get into, suddenly there was room in the middle of the floor, right? People had pulled back. And into the room comes this man on the mat. What was Jesus looking at at that moment? What did he see? What he looked at, what he saw, was four faces around the edges of that newly formed hole, looking down to see if their friend had landed in front of Jesus. (laughs) When Jesus saw their faith, what did he see? He saw loyal friends willing to take risks on behalf of their friend. When he looked up, he saw expectant faces waiting to see what he was going to do about this interruption. When Jesus looked up and saw their faith, he saw loving effort. We don't know how far these men had had to bring their friend. We don't know what kind of obstacles they faced. We do know when they got there and they faced a wall of people they didn't take no front answer. They went up and came in an entrance that was no, you know, wasn't there when Jesus had arrived at the building. He looks up and sees people who would make incredible effort for the friend. He also sees complete trust. Complete trust in him. He sees that we will do whatever it takes to get him in front of Jesus' attitude. You know? All we know is that we've got to get a friend in front of Jesus. It's all we know. We're going to do whatever it takes. Can't get in through a door. Can't get through the windows. I think a lot of people, frankly, I would have. I would have said, you know, guys, ah, I got an ant across town. Let's go stay there for the night. She'll feed us. We'll lounge. And then we'll come back early in the morning. We'll try to cast Jesus before the crowds arrive. Right? Wouldn't you? But no, no. They are like, we are here. We have brought our friend from who knows where. And we are going to get in front of Jesus today, now. That's what Jesus saw when he saw their faith. Now, the question that comes to me, and I pose it to you today, is, what does Jesus see when he sees your faith? Not just your faith in some broad sort of term, but your faith in terms of what you believe he will be able to do for those you love, for the friends you have, for the people in your lives who have a need. What does Jesus see when he sees your faith? And maybe more to the point, what are you willing to do to get your friends in front of Jesus? What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to overcome? What are you willing to tear open? What kind of criticism are you willing to endure? Because I'm thinking there might have been some. You know, what kind of uh, criticism or, or or sideways looks or or, or you know, problems are you willing to overcome for the sake of your friends what these friends I'm so challenged by them because they're compelled by one simple thing get our friend in front of Jesus whatever it takes get our friend in front of Jesus whatever it takes if they just did that then they knew the rest was up to Jesus at that point do you feel this way about Jesus do I feel this way about Jesus Am I convinced in a way that would cause me to vandalize someone's property that if I could just get them in front of Jesus, all the rest that need to happen would happen? That what my friend truly needs, that what my family member truly needs, what my son or my daughter truly needs, regardless of what they may think they need, that what they truly need would be met by Jesus. I just got to get them in front of Jesus. And and what I love about this is that when I finally realized that it's what Jesus can do for them that matters, and my responsibility lies in just getting them in front of Jesus, it's a huge relief, right? Because I think, can I just say it, when we think of healing or we think of meeting people's needs, we often carry a burden to do what? To do it. To make it happen. To, like, meet all the need or bring all the healing or do everything that needs to be done. And this story challenges me because it reminds me that, oh, right, my responsibility is to bring people to Jesus. And guess what? It's his responsibility to meet their need. It's his responsibility to bring the transformation. It's his responsibility to speak into the situation, to bring life, to bring healing, to bring forgiveness, to bring goodness, to bring whatever needs to be brought. I'm responsible to do whatever it takes to help my friend get in front of him. And whatever that may mean for you, I I don't know. I challenge you to think about that as you think about the people in your life, your friends, maybe estranged kids, maybe maybe a, maybe a brother or, or, or someone that you work with. When you think about what they really need, when you think about the fact that, oh, they really actually need Jesus, I'm not sure how that works, but, you know, that's who they need. What does doing whatever it takes look like for you? It could be that you decide, doing whatever it takes for me means I actually need to fast and pray for this person. And for some of us, that is like extreme behavior. Right, But I'm going to do whatever it takes. It could be that doing whatever it takes doesn't actually look that complicated. It's actually making time in my schedule to be with that person. Being intentional about it. It could be going on a road trip. It could be making a phone call. It could be summoning up the bravery to say, Can I pray with you in a grocery store or on the street? Or at least, can I pray for you? But preferably, can I pray with you? And, and, and kind of moving into a place of discomfort and putting yourself out there and saying, well, if this is what it's going to take to get them in front of Jesus, I'm going to do it. Maybe it's inviting them to come along with you to a gathering like this, the Sunday morning. Maybe it's realizing that what, what seems to be standing in the way of my friend coming to Jesus is there's questions that they have, and I've got to beef up my theology or my understanding of the Christian faith. I, I've got to explore more so that I can adequately help them get in front of Jesus. I don't know what it is for you. The question is, are we willing to do whatever it takes? And the beautiful thing is, the thing that I love about this story is that Jesus honors that. He honors the risks that we take on behalf of others. He honors the ways that we will do whatever it takes to get them in front of Jesus. He honors that. He sees that. And he responds, I love that. Well... <clears throat> Sermon can end right there, right? We could just go home. Yeah, 5 to 11. Why don't we just do that? But the story's not over. So verse 20, let's come back to it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think that was a bit of a surprising response. Don't you? I, 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 I don't know, but I'm thinking these friends who've just drugged this guy halfway across Galilee might have been a little surprised by these words. They just hauled their friend. They know how heavy he is. They know exactly what's going on in his life. They know precisely why they brought him to Jesus. They brought him to Jesus. They tore off a roof. They dropped him down through so that he would what? Yeah, yeah. the problem's pretty obvious, folks, isn't it? Healing. Take one look at the fellow. You know what's going. You know what the problem is. This is clear. But Jesus does something unexpected. He announces this man's forgiveness. He pronounces forgiveness upon him, which reminds us again that whatever we do to get our friends in front of Jesus, what Jesus sees, what this person really needs, might be different than from what we thought was obvious. And I think that's important. Now, I know that you've had opportunities to walk with people who are hurt over the years. And I know that like me, there's been times where you perhaps thought Well, I know what the problem is. I know what needs to happen here. I know what need Jesus needs to meet. But have you ever had the experience of realizing maybe the Holy Spirit spoke through you or in your mind or heart and you realized, oh, the obvious thing here isn't actually what they need. I remember a time meeting with someone a few years ago who was probably one of the most shattered individuals I've ever met. Profoundly, profoundly broken. Uh, The kind of hurt and abuse and confusion around every conceivable thing, from sexual identity to to physical brokenness to social brokenness, it just was so pervasive that it would make you weep just to be in their proximity. I'm not kidding. And in that moment where there were practical needs that need to be met, in a way that I, you know, not very often, the Holy Spirit spoke so strongly to me that what this individual needed more than anything else was to know that they were loved and valued and precious to God. That there was a Father who so passionately and unconditionally and immeasurably loved them, that in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the confusion, in spite of everything that was going on, they were loved by their Creator. And that's what they needed. And so, by God's grace in, a, I hope, a way that was gentle, they they heard that. They were pointed to Jesus. I, I don't know where that person's story is yet today, but I do know in that moment it was, it was one of those times where what was obvious is not exactly what needed to happen. And I believe the Holy Spirit can speak through us into people's lives and, and help us understand that, yeah, there's obvious needs that need to be met. We don't ignore those. But at times, there's something that God wants to reach in and do that might be unexpected. Well, Jesus' opening words of forgiveness here responds to a deep need, not only in this man, but in, among his people. And we can trust that Jesus will do that. Well, that's all great, but what Jesus says here, of course, is highly offensive. I mean, this gets the boys in the front row really upset. <clears throat> this is what they've been looking for, you know. We heard he was a troublemaker. We heard his teacher was a little whack. This is it. And so these guys in the gallery, they start mumbling and rumbling. The Pharisees teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is a great question, right? And what's the answer to that? No one. <laughs> so we got a problem here. Either the guy is a, bla- a liar, a blasphemer, or shucks. He's God. But they weren't quite thinking that. They were just thinking, wrong! Beep, beep, beep. This guy is crazy. He's off the rails. We need to stop him. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, here's a trick question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is because everyone in the room by that point knew that when Jesus said, get up and walk, what happened? People got up and walked. When people said, you're healed, what happened? People were healed. So, at that point in the story, even here early in Luke, people weren't that shocked anymore about Jesus' power to heal. He had established that. Which might be a reason why Jesus does what he does, but okay. So, he asked them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Which one, by the way? Which one is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Which one? We poll the crowd. How many say, Uh, that it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven? Hands up. How many say it would be easier to say, get up and walk? Hands up. Oh, interesting. Truth is, they're both easy to say. (laughs) But only one of them (laughs) would you have sort of visual proof that it happened. You know what I'm saying? So, both would be fairly easy to say, but uh," and both would be impossible to actually do, but one of them you would distinctly know whether it had happened or not. And that, of course, has to do with the healing. But the greater thing of the forgiveness, so well, that's kind of unseen. You can go around acting like Jesus and pronouncing it, and people are like, well, I don't know. Sure, let's run with that. But there's no proof of it. right? Really? Not really. So Jesus says, which is easier? He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Do you catch that? He's explaining exactly what he's doing here. I want you to know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, this thing you're having a problem with me about, pronouncing forgiveness of this man, I want you to understand that I have the authority to do that. And so, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. What's going on here? Let's try to make sense of this in the next few minutes. Why does Jesus heal this man in this way? I want to quickly recap what we talked about last week, about how healings reveal four things about Jesus. They reveal His greatness. In other words, His ability to conquer disease. His ability to restore what's been broken and lost. So He's he's great. His power. But at the very same time, it reveals His goodness. That He uses that power for the sake of others. He reveals His goodness and His compassion for those who've been broken, for those who've come to Him with needs. Even at times when, frankly, it's a bit... Ah, inconvenient. He has compassion for them. And last week we heard about how he was willing to cleanse and restore this man. So it speaks of his greatness, speaks of his goodness, but it also reveals his intention. You could say his good intention for us. And not just for us, but it becomes these healings are, are like ah, tastes. They're, they're like previews of what he intends to do for all of creation. For all people, they're like little previews as they're happening in front of people. God is saying, I'm going to do for all of creation, for all people, through Christ, what I'm doing right now for this person. Reveals his intention. And also, it reveals his identity. It shows people there's someone on the scene who is God himself. And that's what these healings do all through these gospel stories, all through these eyewitness accounts. And we see the case here as well. Jesus heals this paralyzed man to show that he has the authority to bring complete restoration. It reveals his greatness. It reveals his goodness. It reveals his intention for full restoration. And what we discover in here is he starts to flesh it out. It's not just physical restoration, but it's spiritual restoration. That he's bringing it all to us. That through Christ, complete healing and forgiveness is happening. Of course, we see more tightly than we've seen so far that Jesus healed this paralyzed man to reveal his identity. That he is God's own son. That he is God come in the flesh. That he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And that question that these religious leaders kind of echoes in your mind, well, yeah, but who but God alone has the authority to do that? And the answer is no one. No huh. one. It is only God that has that kind of authority. So let's try to put two and two together here. Who is this guy? Jesus heals him to reveal who he is. This is so significant. It's also significant because at this point in the story, God's people, they already had a way, a process, of receiving forgiveness. They had protocol to follow. They had sacrifices they could offer. They had a way of coming Um, to the priesthood and to the temple and, 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 and actually receiving God's forgiveness. And when Jesus just says, you're forgiven, it's like he's deciding, yeah, that way of doing things, that's coming to an end. I have the authority to forgive sins. I have the authority to pronounce forgiveness. Not only am I God, but I'm replacing the whole way it's been done before. The whole way it's been done, all the sacrifice, all the system, all the, the, all the barriers, all the priesthood, all that, it's coming to an end because now I'm on the scene and I'm announcing that forgiveness has come. He's the forgiver of our sin. It's a powerful revelation. Well, if you bring all that together, he's doing something that we could easily miss because of where we're at in the story. Because we don't have maybe the same resonance with their story. They would have a resonating in their heart and mind, much of what the prophets have said about how God was going to come and restore. And there are things that Jesus is doing right here in this story that would have um, echoed in their hearts and minds. You see, to announce forgiveness and then to heal lameness or blindness or deafness or speech problems, which Jesus did all over the place, was to indicate to people in that day that something was happening that God had promised would happen. And these mighty healings and these announcements of God's kingdom and the forgiveness that's being offered were indicators that what the prophets had talked about was happening right here in this house that had just lost its roof. That it's happening right here in our city, in our place, in our town, among our people. That God's kingdom had come. One of the prophetic words that was given through the prophet Isaiah, it was talking about this time when God would restore. And it says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then it says, Then... Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These kind of prophetic words and more indicated to people that what God was doing through Jesus was what he had promised he would do through the prophets. And so healing and forgiveness were signs that God was back on the scene, that he was restoring his people, that the exile was truly over. Now, I want to take a moment just to explain that. Because the idea of exile is something that was woven deep in the heart of the people of God in the time of Jesus. Because you see, 600 years before, due to disobedience and due to a lot of things, big story, the people of God had been shipped off to foreign lands. Where for 70 years they were under oppressive foreign rule. Until God worked it so that they could return to their land. And that return to their land is chronicled in In like Ezra and Nehemiah and it's told about in the prophets, you can read about it, but they returned to their land and there was a rebuilding that happened, a rebuilding of the walls, a rebuilding of the temple. But you know, it was never quite the same again. And what happened over time is that God's people and then the voice of the prophets came in, they began to feel this, they began to realize, you know what, yes, in one sense, exile is over. Like as in we look around and we were back home. But there was another sense, a spiritual sense, in which exile had never really ended. Because though we're back home in our own land, we're still being ruled by foreign overlords. We're still being sort of shuttered up and, and, and not really we're not really being the people of God we thought we were going to be. God's spirit never did return to the temple the way he originally had when Solomon built it. There was things and indicators that in some ways the exile was still happening. And so they worked that through for hundreds of years and came to a place, some of them came to a place, of looking forward to a new exodus, a new exile being over, a new uh, redemption and return. And they would characterize that around these things like forgiveness and healing, that one would come who would restore what has been lost. And so when Jesus came on the scene announcing forgiveness, revealing who he was, talking about God's intention, showing that through his teaching and his healing and his pronouncements, people began to perk up the attention because it was like, oh, this is the thing we've been hoping for. This is the hopes and the dreams that we had, and they're somehow being done through this Jesus. Yahweh had promised is happening. Well, what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for healing today? In a very real sense, with the coming of Jesus, with His death and resurrection, we can declare with power and with confidence that the exile is over. And yet, we also acknowledge that there's still a whole lot of brokenness going on. So in that sense, we live in a similar place where we live between this profound event, what Jesus has done, even his healings and his teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection, but also what he has promised he would do, that is complete and total restoration, where all things are made new in Christ. And we somehow live between that. We live in the overlap, as it were, between two creations, where the old creation, which is coming to an end, but hasn't ended yet, but the new creation has already begun in Christ. And we live... uh, Can you do the next slide? Yeah, we live in between those things. Now you may have seen something like this before. But the idea there is profound. It's essential that we get this. The one creation has been defeated or brought to an end, but still has yet to be fully eliminated. The new creation has begun, but it's not yet been fully completed. And so the tension, the difficulties, the brokenness, the very reason we need healing and restoration, the things we experience are found right here in this overlap, where we are crying out as it were, from the old creation, for new creation to come. For God to, to make real in us now, and in our situations, and in our lives, and in our bodies, make real in us now what He has done and will fully do in the future. Which means, I believe, that in order to, for us to have a, a real, faithful, robust, um, risky risk-taking understanding of healing, where we'll do whatever it takes to get people in front of Jesus, that at the very same time, we have to have a robust, faithful understanding of what it means to suffer as well. What it means to live in the overlap. Where there is new creation, and there is healing, and there is transformation, and yet, there also seems to be times when it's not happening the way we thought it should happen. We live in the overlap. The overlap of old creation where sin does still destroy, where violence still ruins people's lives, where bodies still ache and break, where we still struggle in so many ways, relational and emotional and physical. And yet without question, when you look at the life of Jesus and these, these eyewitness accounts, which are solid accounts, when we look at what Jesus has done, when we look at what he's done through history, we can say, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that something new has begun in Christ, that new creation has come, and the gift of God's Holy Spirit takes a little bit of the future and drags it into the presence and then in the present and then deposit deposits it in, in the people of God in our own individual lives, and in our corporate life as the church. And we're, we become these living previews of the new creation that will be fully true in the future and is partially true now. is really true, but only in, in, in ways that we sometimes see and experience, but is still yet to be fully done. The Holy Spirit has come and is present here without a question. We're able to proclaim that God's new kingdom has come to do that in power because of His dying, His rising again, and the gift of His Holy Spirit. And yet, I alluded to this last week in Romans chapter 8, we see that God's people who are still in groaning bodies are given the gift of God's Holy Spirit that empowers us to live this new creation life in a world that still groans. That empowers us to live new creation life in bodies that still groan. We're able to live boldly and faithfully asking for Jesus to really heal, to really make a difference and acknowledge at the same time that things are not fully the way they will be. We can acknowledge good intention, the greatness and the goodness of Jesus and yet still faithfully trust him when things aren't quite the way we had hoped. This in-between time, this overlap is where we live by the power of the Holy Spirit where we still cry out for healing but we also still suffer and that's the truth. That we live in the present, in this overlap, as witnesses to what God is doing and what he will do, which he made sure in Christ. Do we have time for a couple questions? And then I'll close. I know I just sprung that on you, didn't I? Is there anyone who has a burning question they'd like to ask about this? This is pertinent stuff, and I know it's relevant to your life. Is there a question that you you can't resist asking? I don't just mean an esoteric question because you want to stump me up here. I mean the kind of question that's like, what do I do with this? Anyone? Put your hand up. I'll repeat your question for the podcast. But if there is, I want to take it. Anyone? Thank you, Nettie. And this afternoon, we're going to ask for a miracle for your dad, okay? It's not wrong. What I love about the stories of Jesus and what I love about the character and the heart of God is that we can come to him and ask him for anything. And trust Him. And we can boldly ask Him to bring healing. Boldly and fully trust Him. Say, Jesus, please heal in your name. Restore. Make right. And be really honest before God and say, We don't want to lose Bill. We don't. Lord Jesus, we don't. But I believe at the very same time to say, But we know your love for Him never changes that your love for us has been established on the cross. And we don't need to wonder if, if, if it doesn't happen the way we thought or if it does happen the way we thought, that that's a sign whether God loves us or not or loves Bill or not. It's just not true. That love has been established, but we can boldly go and faithfully go and ask and plead with God. We don't need to hedge our bets. Let's tear off the roof and let him down and see what Jesus will do. I won't tear a roof off of your mom and dad's house today. <laughs> But let's do that. Let's boldly ask. That's what Jesus, I believe, invites us to do. And we don't need to worry. This is, this is the relief part I talked about. Because I think sometimes, let's be honest, when we're hesitant about being bold, about asking for prayer, you know what, you know what, folks? I'm just going to tell you how bad I am. It's because I don't want to look bad. I don't want to be too bold and then be left holding the bag because somehow Jesus didn't come through the way I thought he would come. Forget it. Forget it. Tear off the roof and let him down and let Jesus do his thing. Jesus is trustworthy. He's great. He's good. He's got wonderful intention for all of us, for your dad, for each and every one. And We'll boldly ask, but we'll also faithfully trust Jesus and his love and his power. Listen, I'll wrap up here. I believe the challenge, I wrote it on the screen of this story is that we can boldly entrust people to Jesus, knowing that he is the best thing you can do for them. Now, I don't know what the situation is in your life, in your family, in your own personal body or relationships, where you need healing. What I do know is this, Jesus is great, Jesus is good, Jesus is the very Son of God who has promised to bring full and complete restoration to this world, to us, including our bodies, through resurrection. He has promised that. He has made that sure. And we can come to him openly and faithfully and just entrust ourselves and trust people to him. He is the very best thing we can do for them. The very best thing. And we can trust that he will always respond precisely as we need him to respond. My invitation to all of us today is that we would take that to heart. We would entrust people to Him, believing that He is the best thing for them. Would you stand with me? And, and, and what I want to ask you to do as we close today is if there's a person in your life that you want to entrust to Jesus, I just, just raise your hand. It's as simple as that. If there's a person in your life that you want to entrust to Jesus, just raise your hand and in your mind and heart, Offer that person to Jesus. Entrust them to Jesus. Particularly, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal if there's something you need to do with respect to you know, tearing off the roof, as it were. But but as a statement of faith, raise your hand. I'm going to entrust that person to Jesus. And with your other hand, if it's you, if, if you're the person that you're saying, Jesus, I need to entrust myself to you, then just take your, your other hand and just place it on your heart. And just place it on your heart. You're entrusting yourself to Jesus. And Jesus, knowing our hearts and our minds today, he sees each one of us. He sees the hands that are raised. He sees the hands that are on hearts. He sees our hearts and minds. Let's entrust to him what matters. Let's pray. Jesus, you see our hearts. You see the hands that are raised. You know every name that is represented by those hands raised. You see the situation. You know the need. Penetratingly so. You know the need. And for those people who we are entrusting to you today, Lord Jesus, we just simply ask that you would do your thing, that you, would, that you would heal, that you would restore, that the things that are broken would be mended. We pray for new creation to come even now, because you are good and you're great, and this is not beyond your power. So we boldly ask, Lord Jesus, as we entrust these people to you, that you would bring healing and grace into their lives. And Lord Jesus, for ourselves, for those of us whose hands are on our hearts, who are carrying in our own bodies and our own lives a brokenness that we desperately need you to touch. Lord Jesus, we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you are good. We want to hear what you have to say to us. We want to hear your word of forgiveness. We want to hear your word of healing. We want to hear whatever you have for us, Lord Jesus. And we entrust ourselves to you because you are good. Jesus, in the midst of all this, we just trust you and know that your goodness, your greatness, that your full intention for us has been revealed in Christ and promised and made sure by your Holy Spirit. And so we throw ourselves at you and tell you that we are yours. We trust you. We trust you. We stand today as people who know who you are. I want to see more people experience that. But it starts with us entrusting ourselves and trusting others to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your work of new creation, for dying and rising again, for sending your Holy Spirit, for living among us now, for bringing new creation to us now as a foretaste and preview of what's to come for all. We praise you and thank you for being the King of the world, the King of heaven and earth. We praise you and thank you. Would you send us now as your people willing to do whatever it takes to get people in front of Jesus because we trust you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today, friends. And I just invite you to hang out. If you want to pray with each other, do so. If you want to come for prayer, come talk to me. We'll pray together. And if not, I hope to join you at coffee time. God bless.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. If you have been listening for a while, perhaps you're wondering how you can support the church financially. To find out, please go to ericksoncovenant.ca and click on the Donate tab. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Every day we are seeking to help people to find and follow Jesus.